So what I did was I gave you something that will take two weeks or longer uh, for us to get through. Uh, I've got this week and next week, and then Cody's going to do that Wednesday night, the third Wednesday night. So I'm just trying to land this thing uh, before we get to that third Wednesday. But if you guys have a lot of questions and y'all open up a can of worms, we'll pick right back up and keep going with this because we're, like I said last week, we've come to the last chapter, which is about salvation. And so I'm just kind of reiterating a number of things uh, that we've talked about because I've read this book a few dozen times, <laughs> read it twice in the last two days again, or at least these chapters. And I, I just continue to see his path about the approach that he's trying to take. Um, not that I could ever write a book that would anybody would ever buy, but I am figuring out the important things if you do sit down and write a book that you describe for people the path that you're taking so they can get the overall perspective of what's going on. So um, I'm going to try to do that for you. I'll pass that back. Ashley just came in. All right, so anthropology is kind of where we started, the study of man. And the big conclusion that he is wanting you to make from an anthropological standpoint is man as a whole. And he, we went through a number of words in the New Testament, most of which Paul uses, flesh, soul, spirit, heart, and mind. And what's the conclusion? Using all those words, you tell me what's the conclusion of all those words that are so important that you draw away from that. Yeah, it's, it's inseparable. He's talking about the same thing. And so you need to understand man in that context. Man was created by God as a whole. The stuff of man, the physical as well as that part which, which made up the image of God had nothing to do with sin. Nothing. So you take all the physical and you take that unique spiritual thing that God did in you, in His image, had no relationship to sin whatsoever. Okay? Which makes sin, and I'll get into a homartiology in just a second, it makes sin this alien. And when you use the word metaphysical, don't let that throw you off. That just simply means not physical. It's beyond the physical. And so we refer to sin as beyond physical because it's not physical. Okay? I gave you some analogies. Well, we'll talk about when we get to sin. But I want you to go to Matthew 10, 28 real quickly in your Bibles. You're going to need those tonight, by the way, occasionally. And you will see the only division that you're going to find that you can really argue and stand on. And it's something our Lord says. All right, so Cody, will you read 1028? Everybody there? Yeah, I think so. I do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. So what's the division? Body and soul, physical, spiritual. Now why is that important from a theological standpoint? And there are a number of reasons. I'm not going to hold you to one. You tell me. There will be a point in time before the resurrection of the body where the spirit will be separated from the body temporarily. Right. And by the way, that is not a, what's that called? Per 
purgatory. <laughs> it's not purgatory. But what that is describing is there's going to be a period of time where Joey's body will cease to exist, but Joey never ceases to exist. Not going to happen. And at the return of our Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to study it in great detail, it talks about the body that we will receive at the return of Christ. We will be made just like Him. So when He returned, He was in that resurrected state and everybody knew who He was. He ate, He talked, He walked. You know, they sat on the beach together. And you begin to understand a little bit of a perspective, a little bit of a rabbit trail here about what heaven's going to be like in our resurrected bodies. It's going to be like here, except it's going to be perfect and we're going to do all those wonderful things. But there is a very real and very conscious state in between our death and the return and or return of Christ, not the resurrection of Christ, but the return of Christ, which we will be fully conscious, fully aware, fully you in spirit. I don't know what that means, but it's very clear in the context of Scripture. That is the only division that you're going to find in Scripture in regard to us as a human being. Now, the reason that's important from a sin study or a hermartiology is because it is not the physical body that is corrupted. That's the part that God made that God gave us. You begin to understand sin as this metaphysical, beyond physical force that controls, I guess you will, you could say, the inner man that's corrupted the inner man. You know, for instance, here's your analogy. You see a, a, two teenage boys walk up to each other, get heated in an argument, and, and one of the boys physically just shoves the other boy down. What caused that? Well, what caused that is the sinful nature within him, but that was experienced bodily. It was a physical act that you can see, but the cause of that was something on the inside of him that's fallen his sinful nature. Does that make sense? So the physical is easily manipulated by this sin nature, but it's not the physical. And the reason that that's so important is the church had to fight this for a number of years saying, once this body dies, we'll be set free from sin. No, the body's not sinful. The flesh is not sinful. The muscles are not sinful. The mouth, believe it or not, is not sinful. It's that heart, soul, mind, spirit, all those words that we looked at that's been corrupted by our fallen nature. There is no two parts of us. There is no wicked side and good side. There is no dark side and light side or red and blue. Uh, there is no... Star Wars stuff going on. Okay. We don't, we don't have the angel and the devil. No, no angel, no devil. It's it's you're fallen, and your fallen nature manipulates the physical, and the physical easily submits to it. In other words, there's something wrong with you, <laughs> the whole of you, and it's fallen. So that's that's the important part of this. So that's kind of under hermartiology. Sin is the alien to creation, metaphysical force that powerfully affects the whole man. The man is culpable, not the flesh. In other words, when you stand before the Lord, you're culpable for that fallen nature, not what your hands did or your, so to speak, whatever. The flesh weakly submits to the sinful nature. Sin powerfully affects the entirety of the man. Now, why would it be important for us to understand that once we get to salvation? 
that sin affects the whole. See, I'm going to try to make you think over the next two weeks, and that's why I gave you the worksheet so you can think on your own. Why is it important that you establish that truth? That's true. That's true. But if, if man is a whole and he's wholly affected, what sort of salvation must God provide? I guess that's where I'm trying to drive out. Does that make sense? What can you say about the nature of our salvation now that you understand the nature of our fallenness? Yeah, exactly. You're, and that's the point you really need to get that people don't get. You, and we say this all the time, but hopefully you can understand this from a biblical theological perspective. We say, you bring nothing to the table. But now you spent several weeks on end studying that, and hopefully you go, oh, really, you don't understand. We really don't bring anything to the table. We're wholly affected. Therefore, our salvation has to be wholly of God in every respect. Okay? It's not how it's perceived, and there's, there's nothing entirely wrong with this, but theologically there is problems. Salvation is a gift that's lying on the table and you just have to come and pick it up. It's really a poor picture. It's really a poor picture. Because in your fallen state, you're not going to pick it up, and that will play out as we finish this up. Okay? Does that make sense? Does everybody understand that? Um, and the critical part for me, the critical part for me is that your mind is corrupted, which we'll get into in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And if my mind is corrupted, I can't even think in a way that's going to glorify God. Right? It, it's, it's like the mouse on the wheel. I'll always be convinced at the next stride or the next turn of the wheel I will be able to satisfy myself. And I spend my whole life running on that stupid wheel and I never get anywhere. But I'm absolutely convinced that the next stride, the next turn, I will be there. And we do that because our mind is fallen. Rather than stopping, getting off the wheel and just getting on our knees and looking to God. We, we just can't because we look to ourselves. All right, last week, any questions about that? Let's go into the fall of man. Anyway, you've got things there. I, I really encourage you to spend some time sipping on coffee or whatever you do and, and think about some of these things. I could have given you endless passages, and if you want passages on a particular point, I'll send them to you, but I didn't want to give you a 12-page handout, you understand. So, anyway. So last week we established the historical reality of Genesis 1 through 3, and that is absolutely critical if you don't have Genesis 1 through 3 as an historical reality, you don't have an understanding of sin, you don't have an understanding of salvation, I, you you got a mess is what you have. And I guess all those passages that we went through for me to try to make sense to you that Adam was a real historical figure was the fact that he is included in the genealogy of Christ. And I told you, if you untie Genesis 1 through 3, you've untied the genealogy of our Savior. That's a really bad idea. 
and all of a sudden all the bits and pieces. Uh, dear friend of mine, we've known each other now for 30 years next year. Uh, former days, always went to church, fairly good church from what I understand. Somewhere along the last 30 years, he untied Genesis 1 through 3 because he's so into science. And so without question, you know, he holds to what they say about um, evolution and those sort of things. He's a big science person. But I've watched his faith over the last several years become systematically taken apart to where there's really nothing left. Really nothing left. I don't even think that I could get him to say um, that Jesus Christ would be God's only son and the only way to heaven anymore. And that's certainly not how he is raised. And so I'm convinced from my perspective, it's a critical thing that you teach your children the reality of one through three. Because when you get to the point, and I think I said this Sunday, when you get to the point where you're no longer standing there, I think your fate is going to be stripped down to the point where you're going to end up without any faith whatsoever. Because that is the number one critical doctrine that God begins His whole scriptures with. Okay, So you have to hold to that. I put on here the E.J. Young quote that we read last week on your worksheet. Adam went through a unique experience, and this is very important. When Adam sinned, he fell from an estate of being good into an estate of being evil. He was created by God as a creature of whom it could be said that he was very good. And from this condition or estate in which he was created by God, he fell into a state of sin and misery and by his disobedience plunged all men into that same estate of sin and misery. Furthermore, by my sin, I did not fall from the state of being very good into an estate of evil, I and all men like me were born into that miserable estate of sin. And when we sin, we simply show that we were in such an estate. By sinning, Adam became a sinner. By sinning, we do not become sinners. We are already sinners. Sin does not cause us to fall from the state wherein we were created, for we were born into this fallen state. With Adam, however, the case is very different. His sin brought him into this fallen estate. By disobedience, he fell. By disobedience, we simply show that we are already fallen. You would be surprised if I could spend time explaining that statement to the large majority of churches in our area, they would not agree with that statement. And it's very important, and by, hopefully by the end of tonight or maybe next week, you will see why that's so important that you understand. Because from the majority's perspective, Adam is really nothing more an example that had no effect on you. In fact, they would say, the majority would say that Adam inclined you towards sin. Okay? Um, which means if you were just simply inclined in that way, you're just like Adam nothing really happened in the garden of consequence. But something happened of radical consequence in the garden. And because it was of radical consequence, our salvation must be solely of the Lord. You understand? If it was not of consequence upon you, then there's still something in you to turn from your sins and choose God all of your own volition. 
and your salvation is no longer the sovereign grace of God. It's God did a little and you finished it up. And that's not our salvation. That's not what we find in Scripture. But that's what most people buy into. And again, it goes back to what most people think about themselves. What I said Sunday, most people think, if you can really tie them down, Joey is a good guy. Works hard, provides for his wife, loves his wife, loves his kids, goes to church on Sunday. Jesus just had to die to dust him off. That's what we think. But that's not the truth at all, right? All right, uh, the second part of that, sin nature and actual sin are often closely linked in Scripture. Now, what that means is what we inherited from Adam, our sinful nature, and how that expresses our, itself in our lives are closely linked. What Adam did is closely linked to every time that I sin. It's a cause. Does that make sense? What Adam did, it can, what, everything that I do can be traced back to what Adam did that's sinful. Go to Psalms 51. We looked at this last week, but let's just keep doing it and, until we're square with it. All right, somebody read verse 5 for me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. All right. What's he saying there, Nathan? He was born of the sin nature. Born of the sin nature. Now, back up, and Jeremy, read 2 through 4. So what had David done? In what way? What's this about? Specifically? Yeah. Okay, so was David and Bathsheba, well, let's, let's back up. Was David morally responsible before God for adultery? Yes. yes. Then why say verse 5? Why is verse 5 important? Right. This is who I am. That's a very good way to put that. This is simply who I am. This is fruit from the tree that's in my heart. And you have to understand that. Because you, know, you really need to understand it when we get to Romans 5 in just a second. But David understood, I sinned with Bathsheba, not because I'm... Jeremy, don't let me mess this up. Not because I'm an adulterer. I committed adultery because I'm a sinner from the heart. We said several last week. Uh, 
I'm not a thief because I stole. I steal because I'm a thief. I'm not a liar because I told a lie. I told a lie because I'm a liar. I'm not a sinner because I sinned. I sinned because my nature is a sinner. And you've got to understand those things. Because if you understand those things, you'll never look at me and go, well, you know, Joey's a good old guy. He does blah, 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 blah. Jesus needed to die just to clean him up. You'll go, well, that can't be true. Jesus had to die or he was going to hell because he's fallen. You see why these things are important? You begin to understand that, well, huh, you begin to pay more attention to what's going on in your heart and not so much the, the nuts and bolts of what you've done. You understand what you've done because of who you are. Let's take drug addiction. Uh, what do we try to do with drug addicts? Motivate them to do better. Motivate them to do better. It's not their fault. Not their fault. Yeah, we say that a lot. Not their fault. Environment, right? Uh, how would you help them? Not you. I know what you would do, but how? How are they normally helped? Put them in a program. Put them in a program. Is that going to do anything for their heart? This is a good way to understand how the law works. Let's take social justice, right? All that stuff happened, and we want to enact laws or change laws or, or do all this stuff, but what's the problem at the heart? We're fallen. And so what is the only remedy for any sin? A new heart. And so, I mean, I won't say it's without value altogether, but you do understand a lot of stuff that we do it simply addresses the external of the flesh and it never addresses what's going on in the heart. And it's really sad. It's like someone's drowning and you keep trying to give them a drink of water and a snack. And the only thing that they need to be done is lifted up out of the water so they can breathe. But we don't do that for them. We get them a jacket because the water's cold. I mean, it's really foolish. And that's why the church has the ability to lift them up out of the water through the preaching of the gospel because that addresses the need. Okay? Does that make sense? I put Ephesians 2 in here for you, a couple other passages. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Uh, and we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. That's about as simple as you can put it. This is who you were by nature. Not just by nature under the wrath of God, but by nature you indulge the desires of your flesh and of your mind. That's who you were by nature. That's how you operated you could no sooner get a line to stop eating meat than we could do to get you to stop sinning because it's just who you are at your core. Okay? It's just not possible. 
Jesus said this in Matthew 7, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. So, can a man ever produce good fruit? This needs to make sense to everybody. Can a man produce good fruit? Why? He's a bad tree. And that is clearly communicated in Scripture. It's just not possible. And, you know, this really helps. Kim brought it up last week dealing with kids. This really helps you be a good parent. Because when they produce bad fruit, you do discipline them to train them. But you still have to address what's going on in their heart. And you still have to pray for them. Because they do foolish things because of their nature. And so you address them physically, backside, give them a rule or a law. You address them spiritually, let me explain to you why. Because you ask a little boy why he just threw a rock through a window, he's going to say, well, I don't know. <laughs> let me tell you why. <laughs> and then you pray for them, because until God does something in your heart, that's just how it's going to be. Does that make sense? Uh, we do not become culpable sinners until after we sin. Is that true? Look at those two statements. Tell me which one's true and why. Which one's true, A or B? B? B. What do most people believe? A. <laughs> most people believe A, but Scripture points clearly to B. We're born sinners, therefore we sin. All right, so let me introduce to you Romans 5. Um, and First, let me show you what he's trying to do, Okay. Because, all right, everybody turn the Bibles to Romans 5. Because you need to walk with me for just a second. And again, we're going to talk about this next week. And hopefully it'll be either really be really short or you'll have a lot of good questions. So, Romans 5, you there? Look at verse 12. Therefore, now, as has been said, if you see one of those, you've got to back up and see, because he's making a concluding statement, therefore, so he's drawing a conclusion. So if you back up to chapter 5, verse 1, you find another one, therefore, having been justified by faith, right? And so we've got these statements all the way through here. We can key on the word justification. Look at 324. Now let me start 328 first. 328 says we maintain that a man is justified by faith. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. Right? Uh, and then all the way back to 117. Look all the way back there. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it stands written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now I've said this the last few Sundays. 
And I really, if anybody entitled Romans faith with one word, I would have to agree with him. Paul is trying to make the argument, and he's going to spend several chapters doing it, that we're saved by faith and faith alone. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to set you up for 5.12 so you understand 5.12. 1 and 2, he talks about our fallen nature. The wrath of God is revealed against all men who suppress the truth. Who suppresses the truth? All men. Okay? Now, turn over to 3.21, and he'll talk about this faith. And now, Romans 3.1, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. All right? Verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And what he does in chapter 4, he picks up the subject of the law, but he shows how Abraham is the Old Testament example of being justified by faith. Okay? You get into chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, he still hasn't left our subject, we have peace with, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he begins to pick up the subject, how was it that Jesus justified us? How is it that simple faith in Christ can justify us. We'll look at verse uh, 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Okay? So we've been talking about this, and he said it in a ton of different ways. But this is his subject. Justified by faith. And of course we know faith has an object and it's going to be in Jesus Christ. Okay, And he proves that. He goes to the law and he proves it and he gives Abraham an example. Comes back to it, 5.1, Therefore we've been justified by faith in Christ. And then he wants to talk about how the death and the life was the work that Christ did on our behalf, okay? And of course, Nathan had to understand this before he could go out with my daughter, <laughs> right? Substitutionary atonement. Christ died for us. In fact, he says that in, look at verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, okay? So it begins to lay out what Jesus has done that was for us in order that we might be saved by faith and faith alone. Okay? You follow me? I need to see nodding heads. And let me see a shake one if you don't get it. Everybody with me? So what he does next is he brings up the work of Christ that justifies us in 512 through 521. Okay, so let me read through it real quickly, and I want you to key on Jesus. There's two men here, but I don't want you to pay attention to Adam. I want you to pay attention to Jesus. Okay, here we go. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned. From Adam until Moses, even over those who had sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through that one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then... Verse 18 is key. There is a digression here there, in there, and I'll talk about it in a minute. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, let me ask you this. Who won your justification for you? Who was it? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Are you comfortable with understanding that He's your representative? I think all of us are far enough along in our faith that we never want to stand before God in our own work or our own merit. I think all of us understand that we want to stand in the merit or the work of Jesus Christ and allow His life to represent us and His death to pay for us. Everybody comfortable with that <laughs> in a big way, right? Well, then why in the world wouldn't you be comfortable with the reality that God allowed Adam to represent you as a man? Because when he sinned, the human race was condemned. Right? Do what? You wouldn't have sinned. I guess that's what folks think. I don't know. Now... This is key passage. Let me, let me show you how this... So you've got a pencil or a pen there. I want you to underline uh, 512. And then I want you to underline 518 and 519. Because that's the thrust of the argument. In fact, he chases a little bit of a rabbit or he digresses here a little bit on 513 all the way through 17. And it's a little confusing. So let me read 12, 18, and 19. And then I'll give you your homework, and i got a lot of homework left on there for you. All right, here we go. 12, 18, 19. Therefore, we've been justified by faith in 5.1. Then he comes down to explain it in 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sinned entered into the world, death came through sin, and so death is spread to all men because all sinned. 
5.18. So then, as through one sin or transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there has resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many have been made righteous. See that? When you take out his digression from 13 through 17, it's, it's pretty much black and white. But he chases a little bit of a rabbit there. Okay? Now here's your homework. I want you to mark, and I've got it one, two, three. I want you to mark the bys and the throughs. That's the Greek word dia, but study them and understand. And you may need to go back and read it with this phrase, the channel by which something has come. Okay? For instance, 512, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Okay, now let me ask you something. Sin did what? Entered into the world through who or what? One man. And that's how you work through the first through. You see what came and who it came through. Does that make sense? Then work out the out, out ofs and the froms, and that's the source. And then work out the twos and the untos, and there's only a couple of those. And I think it's always translated results. But you get the picture, and that'll be super helpful, you breaking down this passage. Now, turn the page. Look under C and fill in these blanks. And some of them, obviously, I filled for you. So the two men, you can write in who they are. You already know who they are, Adam and Christ. Work through the two acts, 12, 15, 17, 18, 19, talk about the one trespass or the one sin. Verse 18 talks about the one righteous act. And then the results, you got a little bit of a filling in to do because 15, 16, 18, and 19 were negative effects. One of those is condemnation. 17, 18, and 19 is positive effects, and one of those is justification. Okay? And all that's from Romans 5. All that's from Romans 5.12. Now here's the question up in B that I want you to think about. The arguments begin with a great number of people. When we begin to talk about guilt and the role of Adam, and again, I'll take you back to what Zimmick says. If you don't understand sin, you won't understand salvation. So, from A and B, you have the arguments. The majority of people say this, Adam made us inclined to sin, we have free will, and we're justified or regenerated by our decision for Jesus. I say, Scripture says, you're guilty because of what Adam has done. Your will is in bondage. You don't have the freedom of will to choose and we're regenerated by the grace of God and the Spirit of God. Now, one of the biggest reasons this is so important, other than what Tyler was talking about a few minutes ago, our sovereign salvation and grace, is because if you understand that you've been purchased out from among men the worship of God and the service of God is no longer an option for you. It's a joy, hopefully, but it's also an obligation. There's so much I can say about that. 
Turn over to Romans 11. Look at verse 32. Romans eleven thirty two. For God has shut up all in disobedience. There's not a whole lot you can do with that. If you ask the question, how did he do that? It's really quite simple. He did it through Adam. He shut us all up in disobedience through our fallen nature. But then he goes on to explain it so that he may show mercy to all as well. You get the picture. And you know, for an individual coming to faith in Christ, we just simply rejoice at that. But the more that I study, the more that I don't like how I grew up. It was all based on the decision and you do all kinds of things to affect people emotionally in order to make them a decision. I've always, since coming to understand this, have likened our conversion as just like a baby being born. Does a baby cry? Yeah. Does that give that child life? No. Is it evidence that that child has life? Yes. But that cry didn't give the child life. Do we make a decision for Jesus? Yes. Did that decision cause us to be born again? <laughs> no. It was just evidence that we have been born of the Spirit of God. I mean, I can't make it any simpler than that. And if your salvation looks like that, it will make you understand our absolute need of God for everything. You have nothing to brag about. You have nothing to hold your head up. You're a beggar laying at the feet of a very gracious and giving God. But you're still a beggar laying at His feet for everything. And you'll begin to see that my breath comes from the hand of God. My heart beating comes from the hand of God. My job that I work at comes from the hand of God. That food on our table comes from the hand of God. How our children, you guys brag on our kids. Paige and I will confess so quickly, that came from the hand of God. I hope that He works in your kid's life even more than He's worked in our kid's life. But that came from the hand of God. Everything comes from the hand of God. And once you begin to realize that, you begin to serve Him in all things. And you begin to be so thankful for everything. 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 Even hardships because you go, Ah, that hardship came into my life from the hand of God. He must be working in my life to change me. And now all of a sudden you've got a, a path for absolute maturity and faith. Rather than a decisional generation guy that walks around with this thought, Well, you just need to choose Jesus. You just need to accept Jesus. You just need to accept Jesus. You really do, but you also need to understand if you do, ooh, it's the hand of God. So I give you a lot of homework there. Any questions? You work through those things, and maybe I can explain it better next week. I'll read the book a few more times, but...